You can turn then to our sermon text in Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8, and I'll be reading the whole chapter, beginning in verse 1, but you'll remember that this is after the flood has begun, Noah and his family and the animals are on the ark, and we'll pick up then in the midst of the flood, chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth. And the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated, and in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat, and the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited, and another seven days, and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, The waters were dried off from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark, and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons, and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. Then Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and burnt, sorry, took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, Day and night shall not cease. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray for God's blessing upon his word. Lord God, we thank you for the grace that you show your people. We thank you for the goodness that we know from day to day and throughout this year. We pray that we might be brought to a greater uh, gratitude and thanks to you 
uh, a greater understanding of your power and mercy as we come to this, your word. We pray that you would bless us, give us understanding. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned earlier, the uh, chapter 8 begins in the middle of the flood. The account of the flood begins in chapter 7, at the beginning of chapter 7, and carries through uh, almost to the end of this chapter in chapter 8. And last time we saw that the flood arrived, the living things on the land were wiped out, all mankind, except for Noah and his household and the animals that were with him on the ark. Only in God's uh, provision of salvation were uh, they saved. And in this chapter, God does not leave them hanging there uh, in the ark amidst the waters, but he uh, begins to create again dry land, make dry land appear, gives them a place, gives them a world, a new world. God remembers them, and so they give thanks to God. And so God remembers his people today, and so God's people today should give thanks to him as well. I want to look at first how God remembered Noah, uh, how then God released the passengers of the ark onto the land, how Noah then responded with worship that was pleasing to God, and then God's intention uh, to never again send such a disaster while the earth remains So first, God remembered Noah and those on the ark. That's what we find in the first verse. But as you look throughout this whole passage, both chapter 7 and 8, you come across a lot of different um, phrases regarding time. You know, 150 days, 40 days, 7 days, on this day of the month, on that day of the month. And it can all get a little bit confusing. And especially as you try to calculate it out, you realize this, this is not a very straightforward Um, chronology uh, that is given. Now, it's clear enough that we can understand it, especially when it began, when it ended, because it tells you what day of the year. But uh, it seems like there would have been a more simple way to do it. But more is going on. There is a a purpose behind it as you look more closely. The text is not only telling you how long the flood lasted. It is doing that. But more than that, it is using these time periods to emphasize verses 1 and 2 of chapter 8, to make that the core of the text, uh, to make that the high point, literally the high point is the ark is at, at, the, at its high point, but also the high point of the account. And why do I say that? Well, in chapters 7 through 8, there is a literary symmetry on either side of that text. Now, I'm not saying there's a chrono- chronological time. It's not necessarily in the middle time-wise of the flood, but when you look at how many times the numbers are mentioned on either side of it. It's symmetrical. Chapter 7 begins by referring to a period of seven days twice. So it's the same time that it's recounted, but it's the number seven is mentioned twice. And then it mentions 40 days in verse 17. Uh, Not counting the 40 days, 40 nights, because that's not just talking about a number of days, but it mentions 40 days in particular in verse 17. Then it mentions at the end of that chapter a period of 150 days. Well, after verses 1 and 2 of chapter 8, it mentions that same 150 days, but it mentions it again. Then it mentions a period of 40 days before he sends out the raven, and then it speaks of two periods of seven days each, 
between the sending of the dove. And so uh, if you look at what numbers of days are mentioned, it goes 7, 7, 40, 150. 150, 40, 7, 7. Uh, so you have that symmetrical uh, pattern there that emphasizes what's between the 250, is the 150 and 150. Again, not chronologically, 150 is the same time period. Um, but as you just look through the text, it's emphasizing verses 1 through 2. This pattern is called a chiasm, and uh, not that you need to know that, but it's a pattern that's used elsewhere in Scripture as well. And so what is emphasized here? God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. God remembered Noah and those who were with him on the ark. God showed mercy to them. God was faithful to them and God delivered them. Now, it doesn't mean that God forgot Noah. It means quite the opposite for him to remember Noah. It means that even though Noah might have felt isolated and helpless sitting there in a box-like boat, you know, a big boat in the middle of an ocean with nothing around him, kind of closed up inside, yet God had not forgotten Noah in the midst of this great work throughout the earth. And he began to show Noah his faithfulness by causing the waters to recede from the earth. He remembered him, and therefore he acted. Once the flood wiped out all the life that was on the earth, except for those who were on the ark, their position was still precarious. They had nowhere to land. What were they supposed to do? Their food would eventually run out. Their, the, the water, uh, it stopped raining. How would they collect more? But God had not brought Noah into the ark only to die in the wilderness of the ocean. Uh, he had not delivered them from that judgment and wrath to come, only to leave them hanging there in the middle of nowhere. In a sense, Noah was like Israel in the wilderness, delivered from uh, the judgment and yet left there in between. Delivered, but not yet arrived. He was in a wilderness, but not a wilderness like a desert, a wilderness of water, of a different kind of waste. Would God bring him to the promised land? Would the dry land yet again appear? Well, God would not leave the passengers of the ark. He would not forsake them. He remembered them, and he acted to bring them to their destination. Now, this was not written for Noah's sake. It was written for God's covenant people in every generation. It was written for those who, like Noah, would have condemned the world and have trusted in God's provision of salvation. God will remember you. He will not leave you hanging there in the midst of having uh, received Christ and yet not yet received all that has been promised, he will remember and fulfill his word. Cast yourself upon the Lord and he will complete the work that he has begun in you. As Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. A little bit later, he says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So even if the 
pilgrim pathway should lead through thorns and thistles, through desolation and trials. He will bring you forth to your glorious inheritance. This would have been a lesson for Israel as they received these, this book from Moses, and it is still applicable to God's people today, that God will remember you and he will act to, not only to deliver you, but also to grant you a place with him. The second thing we then notice as a consequence of God remembering Noah is that God causes the flood to subside and he makes dry land appear again. He releases the passengers out. It mentions at the beginning of this chapter that God closed the fountains of the deep that had sent forth the water from below and that closed the windows of the heavens that had sent water from above. And he began to divide the waters once again. He made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. What does that remind you of? Think about it. A wind blowing over the waters so that dry land appears. And I'll give you a hint. The word for wind is the same as spirit. Well, we remember back in Genesis 1 verse 2. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. We have here something that would remind us of what God had already done. That the earth had begun with waters covering the whole earth. And God had been in the Spirit hovering over the face of the waters and then broke them apart, gathered them together. He had made the dry land appear. The same word is used here to describe the wind that dried up and moved the waters into place again. God's work in making dry land appear after the flood is, is parallel to his original work of separating and gathering the waters and making the dry land appear. In fact, in Psalm 104, which describes God's work of creation, it, it seems to combine these two events into one event, God's creation of the dry land um, originally and in the flood, where he determined that it would never yet again never again uh, cover the earth. Even as the flood was a decreation, an unmaking of the earth, so the end of the flood was a recreation, a remaking of the earth, separating the elements once again for the sake of man. Something that Peter describes to us as uh, a good parallel for what we expect at the end of the age. Exodus 14, verse 21, would also give us something that the Israelites would have uh, probably remembered when they heard Genesis speaking of a wind going over the waters to make dry land appear. Because in Exodus 14, something that they had seen with their own eyes, it says, Moses stretched his hand out over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. All night long, the winds had blown and separated the Red Sea into two so that they could walk across on dry land. As God caused the flood to subside with his wind, so he had drove back and divided the Red Sea by a strong east wind. As God parted the flood and produced dry land for Noah, so he would part the sea and produce dry land for Israel. That would have been a, a clear parallel to the original audience of Genesis as that generation had come through the Red Sea. This was their God, who was the same in every age, faithful to Noah, faithful to Israel, faithful to his people today, faithful to deliver his covenant people through judgment unto life. 
And so the New Testament compares both these events, the flood and the exodus, to baptism, to salvation through water. God works by his Spirit to save his people, a salvation that's signified and confirmed in the waters of baptism. As Noah and Israel looked to the promised land on the other side, so in Christ you may embrace now your place in the kingdom of God and wait for the restoration of all things, that new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, as we see here in the text, the flood did not go away right away. It took some time. First, there was 150 days or five months before the ark rested on the mountains of Ararat. That's the mountains generally in what's now eastern Turkey or Armenia. That was in the seventh month. And then at the beginning of the tenth month, the tops of the mountains were visible. And then 40 days later, a raven was sent out. And then Noah sent out a dove, but the dove did not find a resting place and returned. But then seven days he sent out the dove again. What did the dove find? It found an olive leaf. Found an olive leaf that it was able to pluck and to bring it back and bring it back to Noah. Olive trees were sprouting. Now, doubtless, they were still small. It didn't have to be a big olive tree. It could have been an olive tree this big, but enough to have a leaf that the dove could pluck and to bring back. In fact, olive trees can grow both from seeds and from branches, uh, even shoots only 5 to 10 centimeters long. And I've read that they can also tolerate relatively high salinity, a wide pH range, stony ground, you know, so maybe it's not surprising that an olive leaf is brought. But it's a sign that there is land and growth. Another seven days he sent out the dove and the dove did not return. The dove had found a resting place. Remember that Noah was named rest. Noah was named after the relief or the rest that was uh, hoped for from the curse upon the ground. God describes the flood as a curse upon the ground, but through Noah they would find rest, a resting place. The ark rested, then the dove rested, and so the people then went out to rest in the land. But Noah waited longer, even after the dove came back. He waited, and then he finally took the covering off, and they could see the land quite well, but they still didn't leave. My guess is that there was good reason for them to wait, that God made them wait to give more land for all the animals, to produce a little grass and food for the animals to eat. But the main point is that Noah waited for God to tell him to leave. God had told him to go in, and he was going to stay in until God told him to get out. And finally, God told him to get out. And so, as he had done throughout this time, Noah continued to obey God, to do all that he was told to do. As God had told him to go in, so he told him to go out. And they went out. The animals went out by families from the earth and told by God to swarm all over the earth, to fill the earth, to be fruitful and multiply, even as God had told the animals in Genesis 1. God delivered them all and brought them to a new earth. Now, how did Noah respond? That's what we come to in our third spot. Not only did God remember Noah and bring them all to a a new world, to dry land, to the promised land, but God also then received Noah's worship. Noah responded with worship, which was pleasing to God. 
as they came off the ark, the first thing we hear that Noah did was to build an altar, a platform on which he could offer burnt offerings to God. He responded to his deliverance with worship. God had demonstrated his righteousness, his power, his faithfulness, his mercy, and so Noah had much reason to be reverent towards God, to be grateful towards God. And so he devotes himself to God, giving honor and thanks to him. He does so by taking some of each clean animal. The word here implies domesticated animal, maybe not all the animals, but clean animals and clean birds. He had been told to take more clean animals than unclean animals, just one pair of unclean animals, but seven, either seven in individual clean animals or seven pairs of clean animals, in any case, more clean animals, so that he would have some to sacrifice. They weren't eating meat yet before the flood, and so the distinction of clean and unclean was primarily made then for sacrifice. These were animals appropriate for sacrifice, and so Noah appropriately uh, followed these guidelines and offered from the clean animals to the Lord. Now, burnt offerings are described in more detail in Leviticus 1, something familiar to the original audience of Genesis, Leviticus 1, 3 through 9. As one commentator says, it both made atonement, that's what Leviticus 1, 4 says, in the actual killing of the animal, would make atonement through the shedding of blood. And then he goes on to say, and served as an act expressing the total dedication of the worshiper to God. The whole animal ascended to God in the smoke. It was a whole burnt offering. And so representing the, the dedication of the worshiper to God. Leviticus says that the burnt offering would be accepted for the worshiper uh, to make atonement for him, the blood being thrown aside against the sides of the altar, and then the corpse of the animal would be burnt as a food offering with a pleasing aroma, that he would be accepted before the Lord. And so Noah offered burnt offerings. He approached God by means of atonement for his sins, uh, by the shedding of blood, prefiguring Christ, and then expressing his thanks and devotion to God. The worship was received by God. To him it was a pleasing aroma. The way a steak on the grill might be a pleasing aroma to you, so, by analogy, you and your believing and sincere worship through Christ is pleasing to God. You know, God doesn't have a body like a man. It's using an analogy here. Uh, but it's, it shows the, the pleasure and delight that he takes in the worship of his people, their prayers, their offering of themselves as living sacrifices to him. For God to smell a sacrifice implies his acceptance of it and the person offering it. So God had regard for Noah and his offering. Through the Christ who would ultimately supply that atonement for his people, God accepted Noah and his worship. And so we ought to also follow this example. Worship as Noah did. Respond to the works of the Lord with worship. Give thanks for the great things that he has done, for the faithfulness that he has shown you, for the faithfulness he has shown you in the past, in the present, Remember all his benefits and give thanks to him. Remember all his mighty deeds and give him reverence and honor. Remember his covenant faithfulness and his mercy and offer yourself as living sacrifices to him. Approach the Lord through the blood of Christ and offer yourself to him. Your prayers, 
Offer your desires up to Him. Offer your thanks up to Him. That your praises and your thanks, like smoke, might ascend to heaven to be received by God. For He knows all and sees all. God then receives this worship. and We come then to the last part of this chapter. God promised to maintain a stable order on the earth. God smelled the pleasing aroma, and having smelled it, he spoke in his heart. Notice that what we have, Jesus, what we have God speaking at the end of chapter 8 is what he says in his heart, uh, what he determines in himself. Uh, that's revealed to us, but it's only in chapter 9 that he begins to speak directly to Noah as, uh, on the basis of what he had himself determined. The end of chapter 8 describes God's determination to relent, similar how at the beginning of chapter 6, before he starts talking to Noah, he determines in himself to execute judgment. At that time, man's sin provoked his wrath, but now Noah's sacrifice and prayer prompts him to relent. God says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. First of all, notice that the flood did not change the nature of man. That generation before the flood was, was sure bad, but, but people are still bad. Uh, it's, it's still true that the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. You inherit the sin of Adam. Your mind, your will, your affections... Your intentions are corrupt from your youth. This corruption does not begin at some point in your life where you fall like Adam fell. No, it's from your youth. It's with you as you grow up. You're conceived with it. It's only by God's grace that its dominion and condemnation may be removed. But then second, note that this, in, despite this inborn depravity, God will not send another flood to wipe out every living thing. Man deserved this judgment for his sin, but judgment like this would not advance his intention to save the world. We would just get flooded all the time. We deserved what happened. It was right and just for him to send the flood, but it was a one-time event to demonstrate where sin led. This is where sin will lead the world. This is what the world it creates looks like. This is the judgment that it deserves. But God in grace has more in store for his world than simply destruction. God willed to save the world in time through Christ. He willed to show kindness and patience to all in accord with his generous nature, to leave for everyone a witness of his goodness to all mankind, and then within that stable order to work out his purposes of redemptive grace, grace that would save, bring people out of darkness. And that would require time. Now, the promise of regularity, that seasons and days and years, all of this will come one after the other, that is made for while the earth remains, or literally all the days of the earth. It probably hints at the fact that the seasons will be interrupted at the end of the age, the day of judgment, the restoration of all things at Christ's coming. At that time, sin and the curse will be removed, Romans 8 describes how all creation groans with expectation for its release from bondage to corruption. On that day, the ungodly will be exposed and destroyed from the earth. The 
earth will be renovated, the believing shall be raised to inherit a glorified creation, a, a new creation, a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. First, uh, Second Peter 3 draws a parallel between what Noah received in this new world and what we look for, which is even better. The present order, as so you go outside and you look around or even inside, it's, it's impressive. The beauty, the wisdom, the uh, blessings that we have today despite the curse, but the coming order will surpass all that you and I have known free from sin and its consequences, purified, and not only that, also glorified, a union of heaven and earth. But in the meantime, meditate upon God's goodness in the present, that he shows despite man's sin in the present order. Consider the beauty, the order, the faithfulness, the fruitfulness that he gives in the midst of ongoing rebellion against him. This restraint that he exercised upon his judgment and upon man's sin, this goodness that he sheds upon all the earth, we sometimes call common grace. It's not saving grace, but it's undeserved goodness that he's shown generally to all. He shows it to the, the elect and the non-elect, to humans, to animals, to all the earth. As Psalm 145 says, the, the eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. Or as Jesus said in Matthew 5, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you might be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Or as Paul said, to the pagans in Acts 14. Yet God did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So when you see the alternating seasons go from summer to fall to winter to spring to summer to fall to winter to spring, the growth and the harvest of crops the rhythms and the patterns and the scientific laws that make life relatively predictable, thank God, it could be otherwise. This is maintained by his faithfulness to his promise. Do not take this relative stability for granted. It allows the farmer to plant his crops, to prepare his crops, to get skilled at his work, to get better from year to year. It allows the scientist to do his experiments, to test his theories, to expect that it might work the same way in the future to improve our ability to work and to provide. It's the patience and faithfulness of God that allows science and production to operate, and it's his word that accounts for the regularity that we see. So beware lest we spurn the goodness of God. Do not treat it as something that you deserve or forget the one who gives these good things. Beware lest you become like those who know God by his gifts and yet do not honor him or give thanks to him and worship the creature rather than the creator. Do not despise the gifts that he gives or blind yourself by them so as to forget the creator. The proper way to receive this world is to enjoy it as a gift and to express your reverence and gratitude with God, with your heart, and with your voice, uh, to make it explicit. 
The weather can seem a little erratic at times. We joke about how we'll go from 70 degrees down to 30 degrees or, you know, bigger swings here and there. But imagine if we didn't have seasons at all. If there was no regularity from year to year, if it could freeze in the middle of July at a a whim, the plants would not have enough time to produce. Our planning and work would seem to be totally in vain. We would live We live currently by the rhythms of seed time and harvest, of cold and heat, of summer and winter, day and night. The days start to get longer, the days start to get shorter. We we plan for that. We depend on that. Likewise, there continue to be local floods and storms and disasters. God continues to give man a taste of his judgment and correction in this age. The curse of death has not yet been removed. But these disorders are not enough to overthrow the course of nature. Neither shall God strike down every living creature as he once did. The normal course of life is one of stability and provision. He has given us good things, good things to enjoy, filling our hearts with gladness, that we might turn to him and worship him, give thanks to him. So let us do so. So in summary, remember that God will remember his covenant people. He will not leave you hanging there with the work half done. He will complete what he has begun and save his people and bring them to their inheritance. Know also that God will deliver those who trust in him by his spirit, bringing them to their inheritance as he delivered Noah onto dry land. Remember that God receives the believing and sincere worship of his people through Jesus Christ. And that ought to be our response, ought to be your response to his power and to his goodness. Remember also that it is God who gives the earth its present stability and its fruitfulness by his goodness and by his grace. So give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His mercy endures forever. Let us give him the glory and the praise. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your kindness, that you have shown us goodness and mercy and patience even before we came to you, that you did not strike us down as soon as we came into existence, but rather that you have brought us to salvation and given us a hope of unending blessings through your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would use these good things to draw the nations to receive your salvation, that you would also bring your people to gratitude and strength and joy through your good gifts, that we might not abuse them or ignore them or so indulge in them that we forget you, but that we would receive them as your good gifts. We thank you for the many good things, for the things we often do not even think about. And we also look with great expectation for the things you have in store for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.